Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Russ. I am one of the elders here at Ephesus Church, and I'll be your preacher today in Pastor Nick's absence. I'm sure we all look forward to him returning later today to have him back in the pulpit. But today we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And the title of the sermon today is Pleasing God. And the uh, uh, words for our worshipers in training, the key words are boldness, witness, and labor. And if I had had a little bit more time to uh, make the sermon title, an alternate sermon title would be Practice What You Preach. Practice What You Preach. But we'll stick with pleasing God for the time being. Now, a few months ago, I preached through the first chapter of Thessalonians. I'm sure you all remember that perfectly, exactly. I know you probably listen to it every week because it was just that, that great. But in case you don't remember, I'm just going to give you a little bit of recap on the city of Thessalonica and kind of what's going on there. Um, the city of Thessalonica is located in modern-day Greece, um, and it was a very important, very diverse, very rich very prosperous and powerful city in the Roman Empire. Um, Some have even referred to it as a second Rome. That's how important the city was. And if you were in this city, as the apostles were, as the apostle Paul was and others, you could find yourself mixing with all kinds of people. Roman soldiers would be there, Roman officials, uh, people involved in trade, uh, people settling there from other parts of the Roman Empire, religious speakers, which we'll talk about today, and philosophers, pilgrims, all kinds of travelers would be conversing on Thessalonica. And the city was a hub that would really become the center of the Christian mission in this area called Macedonia. Now, Paul established the church in Thess- Thessalonica around 49 to 50 AD. And he went there and preached in the synagogues and he told them about Jesus, the Messiah. And as a result, we see in Acts 17:4 that some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But not everybody was so receptive to the gospel. And the unbelieving Jews, however, formed a mob to find Paul. So he left and went to Berea. And there, the Bible says, the Jews, being more noble than those in Thessalonica, received God's word eagerly. But the Thessalonians heard that Paul was in Berea... And they followed him there, and they tried to stir up trouble. So he left Berea and went to Athens. And while in Athens, Paul became worried about the church in Thessalonica because of the trials they were enduring, and he sent Timothy there to help them. And after hearing a good report from Timothy, Paul then went to Corinth. And based on the timing of his travels, we believe Paul wrote his letters to the Thessalonian church during his time that he was in Corinth. So he really wanted to visit the church personally, but verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that Satan hindered him. So this letter would have to suffice. So have you ever thought about what the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel are? Have you ever thought sometimes that maybe it's the church itself that's one of the biggest obstacles to the spread of the gospel? I mean, I can remember from my earliest days hearing about immorality in the church, um, greed. We have many different kinds of prosperity gospels that are going on and many different types of perversions of the gospel all going on inside the church, not outside. 
And just so you know, you may, if you're there thinking that, that you're above these gross sins, or if I think I'm above these gross sins, the Apostle Paul does warn us that if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest that you don't fall. So how can Christians, how can we prevent ourselves from the infection of these moral failures that, that causes the world not to be attracted to the gospel? How can we prevent that from happening? How, how can we prevent people from being, not being attracted to the gospel by our actions? Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. He has considerable amount to say about it. So let's, if you would, join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers or brothers and sisters, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So if you do remember, the main point of chapter 1 revolved around Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith the proof of their election because of their actions, and their incredible witness, a witness that was so great that Paul didn't even need to evangelize that much where they had been witnessing, where they had been sharing their faith. So Paul starts chapter 2 with the word for, which usually means that the following words are the basis for the proceeding. So chapter 2 is kind of why chapter 1 is what it is. Now, Paul lets the readers know that his preaching, his witness, was not a failure despite opposition because he dared to tell the gospel of God. The effect of his ministry was not vain or empty or fruitless since the content of his preaching was not empty of the truth. And there was much fruit like we saw in chapter 1. There's a lot of fruit from his teaching and preaching. But moving on to verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So here in verse 2, Paul seems to be giving us a reason for verse 1, or the reason that his coming was not in vain. Paul's bold speech to declare the gospel was the reason 
that his visit to Thessalonica had not failed. Now, his boldness was in spite of strong opposition. And this is what made a lasting impression on his readers. The unbelieving world tends to take notice and is sometimes even attracted to Christ when Christians continue to be faithful despite difficult circumstances and persecution. That kind of stands out, right? That kind of shines a spotlight on our faith when we're going through difficult times, we're going through persecution, but we stand firm in our faith. Now, where does this boldness come from? How can we get that? Oh, it comes from God, ultimately. And one of the key points is that we must stay in the Word. We must stay in communion and fellowship with God. We must stay in the fellowship of other believers. Otherwise, when difficult circumstances arise, we're not properly prepared to endure suffering and be bold. We're just not prepared to do it if we're not staying in fellowship with God. Because God's Spirit is what empowers us to be bold. The same Spirit that empowered the Apostle Paul to be bold. So Paul also says here that he was bold before God or in God's presence. Paul was bold before God in the sphere, in the context of persecution, or in the midst of much conflict. And Paul spoke frankly in the presence of God who witnesses his integrity and who was the source of it. He can be confident speaking in God's presence. So some people take a Dale Carnegie class, right? Have you ever heard of the Dale Carnegie classes or similar speaking courses in order to overcome shyness or insecurity in in speaking with others and communicating with others, uh, especially to be prepared in sales jobs or marketing jobs? And these courses can be very helpful, right? They they have a lot of good information to them. But do Christians need to take a confidence-building seminar to become bold like the Apostle Paul? No, not really. Our boldness comes from trusting, believing, and knowing God. Being in fellowship with God is where our confidence comes from. So if we have boldness before God in in what we do for him, isn't it a small thing to be brave toward mere humans and carrying on God's work? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He had confidence. He had boldness. He could speak the gospel even in God's presence. So why would he not have boldness in front of people, in front of mere humans? One example that I could think of of this kind of confidence before God and men was uh, Martin Luther and the confidence he had when he refused to deny his understanding of the gospel before the Roman church of his day. I, don't, I think it's hard for us to grasp, really, the boldness that he had to have to do that. He had the whole world basically come in down on top of him. He was risking his very life to do what he did. And what did he say? His famous words were, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, or I can do no other. So his courage and boldness fanned the flames of the Protestant Reformation as we come up soon to Reformation Day. But there are countless other examples of men and women having boldness in front of others. So verse 3 says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. So as I mentioned at the beginning, most of us recognize that at times Christian leaders and speakers who are very eloquent and very persuasive in their preaching and teaching are found to be involved in lifestyles of 
financial corruption or sexual immorality. Those seem to be the two, the two main things that, that happen. But these individuals usually have corrupt reasons for being in the ministry. And this is not unique to our times or cultures. There were some in the first century, and unfortunately, probably always will be until the Lord returns. But there were some in the first century who had corrupt motives for teaching in the church. The New Testament has some very strong words for these people. We see in Second Peter and Jude and Revelation that the Bible says they have eyes full of adultery and that they seduce the unstable. They mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people. They promise the freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. That's what the Bible says about certain people inside the church. Those are very strong words. They promise us freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. So it's quite possible that Paul was being accused of improper motives for his ministry by someone in Thessalonica. So he gives two reasons for his boldness before God and other people in telling the gospel in Thessalon- in, to the Thessalonians. The first reason is because his appeal or his words or his motives was not from error or impure motives or an attempt to trick anyone. So his appeal, his words, what he was saying was not from error or impure motives, or he was not trying to trick anybody. He flatly denies this in verse 3. But what did motivate him then? It wasn't money or to trick people into error or an appetite for immoral gratification or to deceive anyone. But the answer is in verse 4. Above all else, Paul sought to please God. This is why he had a bold and effective witness. He sought to please God. So sin occurs when we want to please ourselves and others so badly that we sometimes do so in wrong or worldly ways, right? Sin is wanting to please ourselves and others. But when we want to please God, these concerns for pleasing the world do not affect us as much. They become smaller. So we need to align our thinking with Paul, who was not trying to please men, but he was trying to please God. And Paul's message originated not from a selfish or corrupt intentions, but from a God-approved heart. The words approved and test here in verse 4 are identical in the Greek and can mean to examine, to test, or to approve. So approved is used in the past sense to indicate that God's examining or testing of Paul happened in the past. God had already tested Paul. He had approved him. He was fit for the ministry. But... Far from being through with Paul, he continues to test him in the present, emphasizing the continuing aspect of God's testing and approving. God continues to test and approve the Apostle Paul. Now, this language of testing the heart is not new, but it parallels in the Old Testament. We see this same, same thing and implies that Paul has confidence, just like the Old Testament prophets before him whose hearts were tested by God and who went forth boldly knowing that they had been approved by God as authorized prophets. So in the gospel appeal to the Thessalonians, the message was not false, the motives were not impure, and the methods were not deceptive. So this is something that we need to remember, that our message 
and our motives and our methods that we use in gospel proclamations need to always be biblical in order to what? Please God or to be according to God's will. And where do we find God's will? We find it in the Bible alone. So Paul's not confident, courageous about some vague theology or about something he heard somewhere, but he's confident about the specific truth of the gospel. That's what he's confident about, which he already partly defined back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, where he said that the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they had turned from their sins, they had turned from their idolatry, they had turned to the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of come. So he's confident in the message that if we turn from our sins, if we turn from our, our idolatry to the living and true God, who is Jesus, that we would be delivered from the wrath to come. So Paul's confidence didn't come from approval ratings or polls or even his circumstances, but he was concerned only about one person's approval, God's. So our sole motive in evangelizing or speaking God's word to others is not trying to please men, but to please God. And Paul uses the same word for please to speak of a loyal soldier pleasing his superior officer by being focused on his military service and not getting entangled in civilian matters. That's how he uses it in 2 Timothy. So God wants us focused on pleasing him who is our superior in every way. So we should always ask if what we're doing is pleasing to God, right? Our only motive is doing anything as a Christian should be to please him. May we never be people who honor God with our lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Now our application here is that the source of our sharing the gospel or speaking the truth of God's word or even standing up for our faith should be a heart that is confident before God because God himself knows our heart and he knows that it's our sole motive to please him. With God's approval, nothing worldly or no evil power should ever tempt us to compromise our faith or to not trust in God and his word. So moving on, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So, as I've mentioned already a couple times, religious frauds have been around the church since Paul's time. Some of them pretended to be Christians, but many represented other religions and other philosophies, traveling from town to town and seeking personal benefits and gain. That was their job. They would go town to town speaking about, about religions and philosophies, and, and that's how they made their living, and that's how they got personal gain. But the goal of most was to obtain money, sexual favors, self-glory, or other personal gain. The problem was so prevalent during this time that a second century satirist or the equivalent of maybe a sitcom writer in our day he wrote an entire work about those who went around the 
the country, practicing quackery and sorcery and trimming the fatheads, for so they style the tradition, traditional pattern of magicians. So this is the world Paul traveled and spoke in. He was following these people or coming in right before them. So those who have persecuted Paul and ran him out of town, at least some of them probably viewed Paul in the same category as these false teachers. So hopefully we have a better idea of why Paul has to go to such great length to defend his character against the charges of being a religious fraud. So what is the best way to respond to false accusations like this? What's the, what's the best way to deal with it? There was a philosopher during Paul's time named Seneca, and he lived during the same time as the Apostle Paul. And he advised that people should allow only those to influence them, quote, who teach us by their lives, who tell us what we ought to do, then prove it by practice, who show us what we should avoid, and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid, end quote. So that's the philosopher's way of saying Practice what you preach. And that's exactly what Paul did. So here in verses 5 through 8, we have our second reason that Paul was so bold in speaking the truth in face of opposition. And that is because Paul loved the Thessalonian Christians as if they were his own children. And he sacrificed in order that they would know and grow in the truth. So Paul lays out what his motives were not in verses 5 through 6. He says, I did not, he did not come to flatter anyone or to cover up greed or to look for praise from men. He did not try to hide selfish motives behind a cloak of apparently pure motives. So Paul states rather matter-of-factly that he could have made demands. The, the, the words here are like when we say to throw our weight around. He could have made demands. He could have thrown his weight around for financial or other selfish gain, but he did not, since this would have been a misuse of his high position in the church. So think of how easily that would have been for him as an apostle to do. So pastors and others who get paid by the church are due their fair wages, but they must avoid becoming consumed with ministering primarily for financial gain. Now also, preachers and teachers should be careful about trying to get the attention of their hearers by telling invented dramatic stories or speaking with false emotion. One of the main ways God works through his messengers is by the sincere conviction of the messengers themselves. That's been one of the main messages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, that the conviction and the faithfulness of the messenger is very important. So for all of us, to the degree that our reason for doing things come from selfish motives, whether it's preaching, teaching, praying, Bible reading, church church attendance, or any aspect of the Christian life, to the degree that we're doing those for selfish motives, we are frauds and only out for personal gain. So in verse 7 through 8, Paul contrasts the pure motives that he did not have with his true desires and feelings. He says that he and his companions were gentle among them, or literally, they became babes or infants in their midst. The idea here here is that Paul did not have underhanded or devious plans, but became as innocent as a young child among them. So in contrast to throwing his weight around and making selfish demands, Paul explains that he was like a mother taking care of her little children 
And then immediately says in verse 8 that they were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but their own selves. What that means is they were willing to give up their lives for the Thessalonians and for the gospel. But why? Why would they do that? Because they had become very dear to Paul. This comment about sharing the gospel is sandwiched right between two expressions of Paul's love for the Thessalonians. This clearly underscores or emphasizes that Paul's commitment of love toward them was the motivating factor in his being willing to give or impart his own life to the Thessalonians. He truly cared for them. He truly loved them. Now Paul is saying he was willing to even sacrifice his life for them because of a a familial or a family concern for these new converts. Ironically, his boldness is expressed with tenderness, with tender care. Note that his example is not just a mother, but a nursing mother who intimately and sensitively cares for her young child. Now, most of you have have been around, have been, some of you ladies have been a nursing mother or you've been around a nursing mother, but you know that the nursing mother must take the initiative to pattern her life around the life of the newborn in order to properly meet the child's needs. Ultimately, she has to sacrifice her needs to meet the needs of her child, and she does this willingly. Why? Because she loves her child. Now, Paul may have used this image because as an apostle, he was representing the true God whose relationship with Israel was sometimes portrayed as a mother caring for her young. And Paul reflected God's character before his newborn converts. And so we should, toward new Christians and generally toward one another, we should have the same attitude. We, and all Christians in general, need to know each other well enough in order that we can know, pray for, and even help meet one another's needs. Moving on to verse 9, Paul says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So starting in verse 9, Paul gives us a little more detailed treatment of his commitment to the Thessalonians. Paul gave himself through labor and toil and hardships. Basically, these words mean hard and exhausting labor. That he worked constantly night and day so he would not be a burden to anyone. We all know Paul had a tent-making ministry. That was his job that he used to support himself. But again, can you imagine how easily it would have been for him, an apostle of God, to demand support from these new converts? He could have just demanded. He didn't have to work and toil and do exhausting labor night and day. But he stated in verse 6 that he refused to take advantage of him. Why do you think he did that? He did so in order that no questioning of his motives would hinder the advancement of the gospel. So the selfless attitude is the same attitude he had as he proclaimed to them the gospel of God. Verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. So in verse 10, Paul states that both the readers and God were witnesses of how holy, righteous, and blameless Paul was. He has nothing to hide to anyone. Paul and his co-workers declared that there was solid evidence that they had acted in conformity with both God's law and with human law while they were in Thessalonica. They had not broken any laws. 
Now, the initial accusation we see that was leveled against them was that these men were defying Caesar's decrees. That is, they acted unjustly in some way. Also, they were, people were told that their preaching led people to abandon the civic and family cults. So this opened them up to the charge of acting impiously against the gods. But Paul emphatically states that their actions conformed to both divine and to human law, and that in all this, they acted blamelessly. In short, Paul declares that he and his companions had fulfilled their obligations to God and to human laws without fail. Now, the end of this verse can be understood that Paul did not conduct himself this way to you or among you, but really what it means is he acted this way for you or for your benefit. So like Paul, we need to be endeavoring to be blameless before God's witness by pursuing all things with pure motives that please God, remembering that we are always in the watchful eye of God and each other and an unbelieving world, right? They're always watching us, but especially God. So the last two verses. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So earlier, Paul compared, compared his selfless care to the readers of the readers to a nursing mother caring for her baby. But now he compares his concern for them to a father who deals with his own, with his own children by encouraging and comforting and urging them. And like a good father, Paul did not take advantage of his children but provided spiritual leadership, ethical or moral instruction, and protection for them. Now, in the context of, you know, what's going on in Roman families of the time, the image of the father was as a severe and harsh man, especially when he warned his children against the temptations of life. The Greek philosophers, on the other hand, advised that fathers should not use beating, but rather reason, exhortation, counsel, and praise of good conduct to instruct his children to follow virtue and shun vices. Now, there would be occasion, the Greek said, to reprove your child, but this should be coupled with kindness always. In all cases, a father should be an example to his children. Aristotle's advice was that a father should not rule as a tyrant over his children and advised a regal relationship to be pursued between a father and son. And the Jewish author, Philo of Alexandria, probably rooting his thoughts from Deuteronomy, said that a father should teach the law to his children and not simply give them knowledge of certain subjects, but to instruct them, quote, on the most essential questions of what to choose and avoid, namely, to choose virtues and avoid vices and the activities to which they lead, end quote. So at the same time, he speaks to the right fathers have to correct and to admonish their children. So Paul, in this context, in comparing himself, he lays out at least three responsibilities of fathers. One, to exhort or urge his children to follow a certain mode of conduct is the first thing. Two, he tells dads to encourage or persuade our children to certain types of actions. And number three, and this is the strongest of the three words here, um, in chapter th- in verse thirteen, but he this last word means to charge or insist or to require certain types of actions. 
So the moral instruction that Paul gave the readers was public, but they were also individual. As he says, we did this to each one of you. So Paul and his co-workers were concerned about the moral well-being of the individual's members of the church, and not only the church as a whole. Their instruction was individual as well as corporate. They took time with the individual people there in Thessalonica. Now, we've kind of reached the climax and the purpose behind all of Paul's actions. The end is so that his readers, readers will walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the truth is, if God has truly called us into his kingdom and glory, then we will live in a manner delighting him in order to be qualified to enter into his glorious kingdom. Now, Paul sometimes refers only to the present phase of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, and other times he refers to the future consummate reality. But I think both aspects may be included here, though the future is likely at the forefront of Paul's mind. In Paul and Jesus' teaching, the kingdom of God is not a territory, but the rule of God that has begun to be exercised in the present time and that will be revealed in the future in all its fullness and glory at the time of Christ's second coming. In short, Paul wants his converts and us to live lives worthy of God and please him so that we are worthy to inherit God's own end-time kingdom in which we will reflect God's own glory at that time. So don't misunderstand me. This does not mean that they or us must earn our way into the kingdom, but that walking worthy is the external evidence of a person who's truly been saved by Christ. It's a badge necessary for entrance into God's eternal kingdom. If there was any element of merit earned by us or apart from God, the glory would not be all of God's own. So in conclusion, the main point of these verses is that Paul's witness among the Thessalonians was effective because it was based on his bold proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And the two main motives behind this boldness was that Paul wanted to please God and he wanted others to please God in order to glorify him. One must want to please God before we can truly desire others to please God. So the kind of attitudes and the lifestyle that Paul depicts in these verses were pleasing to God, to God and resulted in influencing others for the gospel because the life he lived was completely linked to the truth that he preached. The life that he lived was completely linked to the truth that he preached. When we do not live in a manner that reflects the truth of the gospel, we do not please God and we do not have godly boldness. Instead, what we say about the gospel with our lips may have no lasting persuasion and effectiveness for the lives of those who hear us. And the sad result is that they will not please God and possibly not inherit his glorious kingdom. So like Paul says back in chapter 1 and verse 10, that there is no glorious kingdom but only a wrath to come for those who are outside of Christ. So if you are outside of Christ, you need to know that. There is only a wrath to come. But let's not make that mistake. I hope no one in this room or no one that hears my voice will make that mistake. Let's make sure that we believe God. Let's make sure that we trust in God, that we've placed our faith in Christ, that we desire to please God, and that we tell others about God and live lives that will one day usher us into God's own kingdom where we will live glorified lives and we'll be worshiping and fellowshipping 
with our Savior forever. Amen.